good morning. It's always a privilege to open the Word of God together. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis 34. It says in Isaiah 55, the Lord says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And that's our hope this morning and every morning is for the Lord's word to find a place in our heart. And it always accomplishes what he intends for it to accomplish whether or not we are cooperative or not. But let's endeavor to be cooperative this morning and to let the word fall on fertile soil. And so before we read, we'll pray to that end. Father, we come to behold you this morning, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity and who dwells in a high and holy place, but also with him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at your word. We thank you that you send forth your spirit with your word to accomplish its purpose. And we pray that you would give us soft hearts this morning, that you would give us receptivity to what you're saying to us, that we would receive with meekness the engrafted word. We praise you for this word and thank you that you have given us insight and revelation into your heart and your mind and into how we must live as followers of Christ. And we pray that you'd instruct us, speak to us this morning, open our ears and our eyes and make us to leave changed, transformed in the renewing of our minds and with hearts yielded and joyful surrender to you because you're worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we read this and dig into it, I, I just want to give a public service announcement. I'm going to try to keep this, I'm going to try endeavor not to make this any more explicit than the text does, but it is a bit of a PG-13 passage, so to speak. So I see some little ears in here. I'm just giving everyone a, a heads up about that. <clears throat> Let's begin reading. It says, now D Dinah, I'm going to mispronounce that. It's Dinah, but I've been thinking Dina. Every time I read this, I'm thinking Dina. So just excuse me if I say Dina. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. 
But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brother, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, and all their, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So there's, this is another family saga, just like the saga that happened with the blessing and the birthright, where everyone in the passage is culpable and guilty in some regard. Nobody escapes unscathed and at first glance it it looks like this passage is about Dinah and that it's about Simeon and Levi and Shechem and Hamor and it is about them to some extent but if you only see it in that context then it looks a bit random to be dropped in to the rest of the Genesis narrative and what we've seen before because it's been primarily focused on Jacob and that's because this chapter is primarily about Jacob, even though he's only mentioned at the beginning. He's mentioned explicitly at the beginning when he holds his peace, and then at the end when he answers his sons. But it's about Jacob, and it's in this poetic way that it's about Jacob, because he's largely absent from the chapter, but he should have been largely present. 
And that's why it's mostly about him. And we'll get to him. We're going to look at him later in more detail. But first, we're going to look at the characters examined, all of the characters. We're going to look at the consequences experienced. And we're going to look at the covenant established. The characters examined, the consequences experienced, and the covenant established. So... We, we have Dinah here. She's the only daughter of Jacob, and she's born to Leah. She's approximately 13 to 16 years old. Most people think around 16, similar to Joseph in age. And she seems to have frequented the city of Shechem and its women, not just this once. Most commentators agree that this was a perpetual thing. And Josephus, the historian, says that she likely went out to a festival. It says she went out to see the women of the land. And it's, the implication is that she, she was going out to look at their conduct, to learn their ways, to see what they were like. And so it was likely a festival or some public event. And it seems that she was previously acquainted with Shechem prior to this, that this wasn't the first meeting because of the fact that he had such this strong attraction and this drawing to her. And so the, the question comes up here when you read this, when it says that he saw her, he seized her, he lay with her and humiliated her, was this by force or was it by surprise? And there's considerable disagreement depending which commentators you read. Nobody, th there's no consensus on it. Um, some people say it was by surprise. Some say it was by force. The passage is similar to 2 Samuel 13 with Amnon and Tamar. It, a lot of the same language is used except in that passage it explicitly says that he overpowered her. And so there, there's nothing here that says he overpowered her. And so I tend to lean towards the camp of saying that she, she offered consent in this act. It also says at the end, the most convincing thing to that end, I think, is at the end of the chapter when her brothers say, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Now, a prostitute, is, that's a consensual agreement between two people. So that's what I think about it. That's where I land. It's not really important to understanding the passage which way it was. But... In any case, she went out to the land to see these women. She should have instead remained at home. She should have been chaste and a keeper of the home, like it says in Titus 2. Instead, she loved vanity and she sought after lies. And something else to fulfill her, to see the women of the land, what they were doing, what she could see there, what she could find there. And I'm, I would put Leah, I think the text puts Leah as culpable in this as well, because she either did it with Leah's consent or Leah didn't realize and she should have realized. And the same goes for Jacob, but we'll get to him later. It all, it's interesting that the text says that she's the daughter of Leah instead of saying that she's the daughter of Jacob. Uh, in the passage in Genesis 30, when, when Leah with the mandrakes, when Leah goes out with the mandrakes seeking Jacob, it says it's the same phrase there, that she was going out. She went out to seek Jacob. And we know what that was for. So then we have Simeon and Levi. These are the oldest brothers after Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn, and then they were next in line. 
and they were born of Leah as well, so they're fully Dinah's brothers. And it would have been customary for them to some extent to have a voice in settling this matter after it occurred, but certainly not so much of a voice as they had that completely excluded their father and definitely not in the way that they used that voice. We have them being indignant and angry, and this wasn't so much due to the dishonoring of their God or the defiling of their sister, but due to the disgracing of their family and, and themselves as her brothers. So it, it really was a selfish motivation for which they were angry and indignant. This was a carnal anger. How dare this happen and bring shame upon me and my family? And this is evidenced because of the fact that, that they were willing to allow at least under pretense, they weren't really going to let this happen, but they, they pretended to be allowing her to intermarry with the Hivites, with Shechem. And if they had really been concerned for her and they had really been concerned for the glory of God, then they wouldn't have consented to that in the first place because it was something that was forbidden and it was something that they were careful, that their fathers were careful not to practice. So they're indignant and they're angry. And then we have this devious and deceitful scheme that they hatch against Shechem. They sought not a remedy, but vengeance. Vengeance. This isn't justice. This is vengeance. They're taking vengeance on this man. And they conducted this scheme under the pretense of religion and in the name of the Lord using to marry her and bring him back peacefully. Bring, bring him back way to Bethel. Instead, he settles first in Succoth, and then he settles in Shechem, more not intense as he should have been just briefly, and then continue to shop there. And evidently, there were household gods So where is Jacob when Dinah goes out? He wasn't shepherding Dinah. And he was culpable in both cases. And the same question is, is for Simeon and Levi. How did they become violent men? You don't just suddenly one day lead a life of quiet obedience to the Lord and honoring your father and mother and then one day take out the sword and slay a whole city. These were seeds that over time and neglect by Jacob. Jacob had the responsibility for these, his sons, to teach them in the way that they should choose. And slaying a whole city in vengeance is not the way that they should choose. So he has great culpability there for his children in acting this way and then over his wife and the way that she was shepherding her daughter. He's guilty there. And then, but perhaps the biggest glaring thing in the immediately, in the immediate context of the chapter Th those were things that happened over the course of time and seeds that immediate way right in this exact situation when he fails and where he doesn't do what he ought to have done. Something that he could have done here in order to stop this at multiple places, multiple places. And that is that he could have spoken up and he should have spoken up. If you read this chapter, 
several times, then you'll notice there's some, a, a bit of oddity or c- conspicuousness to the way the word spoke or spoken is used. It says it five times in the chapter, and it just kind of jumps out as a little bit odd, the, the way that it's written. And the reason for that is because it's intended to emphasize that Jacob didn't speak. In fact, the only time that that word is used, all five times, it's used in reference to Hamor and Shechem. They were the proactive speakers. They were the ones taking initiative and doing things. It says that, that, that Shechem spoke tenderly to Dinah, that Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, speak with him, and Hamor spoke with them, and then him and his son Shechem go back to the city, and they spoke to the men of their city. So that's the proactive. Spoke is proactive. And then it says of the sons of Jacob, in verse 13, that they answered and they said. So, so Hamor and Shechem initiative and they spoke and, then, and, and, and Jacob didn't even answer. Not only did he not speak, but he didn't answer. He didn't answer back. He wasn't even reactive. His sons were. So they answered. That was the reactive. So there's the proactive, the reactive, and the inactive. And that's Jacob. It says... In verse 5, that he held his peace until they came in. And evidently he held his peace after they came in as well. Because he doesn't say anything else until the very end of the chapter. And at that point the damage is already done. He breaks his silence, but there's, it, it has no effect when he speaks at that point. So he should have proactively spoken to prevent Dina's visit to the city in the first place. He should have proactively spoken to his sons after they heard about Dinah and Dina. He should have proactively spoken to his sons after they heard about her defiling. He should have proactively sought out Shechem and Hamor and spoken to them because Dinah was still there. She was still there with him, and he, he should have taken the initiative and gone out to speak to them and to get his daughter. He should have answered Shechem and Hamor instead of deferring to his sons. It's one thing to give them some place and say in the matter, but the ultimate authority resides with him. And he should have had the last word. He should have corrected them after they struck the accord with Shechem and Hamor, and he should have ended it right there, even if he didn't know that it was deceitful, because it was done under the pretense of them becoming partakers of the covenant of circumcision, and, and joining with them in intermarriage. And there, there's nothing that the Lord commands about them, these men being circumcised and brought into the covenant. And Abraham and Isaac both make it a point. Abraham makes his servant swear when he sends his servant out to find a wife for Isaac. He says, do not take a wife for him from the land of the Canaanites. And Isaac and Rebekah are saying the same thing to Jacob, that he cannot marry one of the women of the Canaanites. And so Jacob should have remembered that and stepped up here and said something. No, no, she's not going to marry one of the men of the land of the Canaanites. And then at the last, he should have reproved his sons for their blood guiltiness. Now, he reproves them in a certain measure, but listen to the text in verse 30. It says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me 
by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, my numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. It's all about me. That's the only reproof that he offers his sons is, look what you've done to me. Look at the shame and the disgrace that you've brought to me and the danger that you've brought to me. He's only concerned with himself. Seven times he refers to himself right there in that passage. And so the Lord touched him when he was wrestling with him and he changed his name. And it signifies the removal of self, but there's still vestiges remaining. So the theme here in this chapter about Jacob is his absence and his neglect. His absence and his neglect. And it was a similar theme with Isaac in the, the blessing and the birthright. Isaac, he should have taken initiative. He, should, he was the one who was favoring Esau. And the Lord, he already knew, he already knew that the, the older was going to serve the younger. Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And still, he's going after Esau. He's showing favor to Esau. And he should have stepped up there. And he should have said, no, this is what the and then that whole saga in that chapter with the blessing and the birthright wouldn't have happened. Because have taken charge and we said, this is what we're going to do according to the word of the Lord. And we put an end to it proactively. And so this is a generational, it's a generational kind of thing that Jacob walks in as well. So this is the characters explained. Let's look at the consequences experienced. Dinah had been defiled, suffered this humiliation. It would have been difficult to marry her after that, to, to find a husband for her. She wouldn't have brought a proper bride price for Jacob. Simeon and Levi, they experienced the displeasure and the rebuke of their father. They put the entire family in danger, and they're actually excluded in Genesis 49 from the blessing. When Jacob is at the end of his life and he's giving his blessing to all of his children, then, then he skips over Reuben because... Reuben lay with one of his concubines, and then he skips over uh, Simeon and Levi here. And he doesn't skip over them and not mentioning them. He just skips over them in a way that is, that is it, it's, it's a blessing, but it's really, uh, he's decrying their behavior. He's remembering their violence, their anger, and their bloodshed. That's what they're remembered for as he's dying. And then he, scatter, he, he scatters them throughout the land, both the tribes of Later, when they're multiplied and they go in to possess the land, they're scattered throughout the land. But there is a token there of mercy from the Lord because the Levites become the priesthood tribes. They don't have their own inheritance. So you see that tension of the Lord, Lord recompensing a man according to his ways, but also showing mercy in being faithful to his covenant. And so then the, the consequence for Shechem, obviously he's deceived into circumstance. And then the Lord himself when he came to the earth. It says in Hebrews that when he came, he said, in the volume of the book it's written of me, I come to do thy will, O God. And he said to the Jews, I do as the Father has commanded me. Well, that's mean. He gave 
him command? Yes, he commanded him. And Jesus was the most joyful man on the face of the earth. It says that because he loved righteousness and hated wickedness, God, his God, anointed him with the oil of gladness above all his companions. And the promise to us, you say, well, I thought the gospel says that we are no longer under law but under grace. Well, that's true in the sense that we're not seeking righteousness through the law, that we're not seeking to be justified through the law. But part of the gospel, part of the new covenant, is what it says in Hebrews 10. It says the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us because he says, this is the covenant that I will make with them in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. So he takes the, the law which was good and right and perfect under the old covenant, but they couldn't keep it, and then he makes it internal. He says, now it's not just outside, it's inside. It's written on your heart. To do. You will love to do these things. And he says in Ezekiel 36, when he's also talking about the new covenant, he says this, not just that he's going to put it there, but I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will cause you to do this because I love you. And this is what I'm purchasing for you with my own blood is the privilege to have my law written on your heart, to want to do it, to have the ability to do it, to delight in it, to be strengthened by it, to find life. Keep my commandments and live, it says in Proverbs. Well, you guys can come back up, Jordan and Elijah. But some, some brief applications, in case that wasn't explicit enough, but particularly for different people, different roles, for, for husbands, actively rule and shepherd your household. The Lord has given you charge as the ruler of your household, not to rule with an iron fist in a domineering way, but to rule for the good of your family, to keep his commandments and live and to charge your family to do the same and shepherd them into it. And this, it's a cons- just in the same way, in the same way that Jacob was sowing these seeds over time that led to what happened with Dinah and that, that led to what Simeon and Levi did and everything else in his family. He's sowing these seeds over time. That's the wrong way. Seeds always bear fruit according to their kind. But you sow the right kind of seeds over time as the ruler and the father of your household, the shepherd of your household. You sow those seeds over time and they will bear fruit. If you sow the right kind of seeds, then they'll bear the right kind of fruit. And that's what we're after. It's not, this, it's not an immediate just, well, I'm going to go home today and I'm just going to fix everything today and tomorrow it's going to be great. No, it's a consistent, methodical investment over the course of time. And you may experience hardship and difficulty because of sinful choices and actions in the past, but the Lord will use those things to teach you and to train you and to strengthen you and to sanctify you. Wives and mothers, look well to the ways of your household and 
pour yourself out in faithfully keeping your home. The Titus 2, it says to re- that the older women should teach the younger to be pure and chaste and keepers of the home and kind. Not like Leah, but looking well. It says in Proverbs 31 that she, the wife, the excellent wife there looks well to the ways of her household. Give her the fruit of her hands. Sons, young men, mortify carnal passions and exercise self-control. Not like Simeon and Levi who acted in the heat of passion of the moment and didn't restrain themselves. That's the command in First Peter 3. Maybe that's not the reference, but when it's giving these multiple commands to women and to young women, and then the command that it gives to the men is exercise self-control. Young men, exercise self-control. Daughters, keep yourself pure. Young women, keep yourself pure and guard against vanity. Guard against seeking after vain things and seeking after lies that will not satisfy, that are not in accordance with the truth. Be pure and chaste, looking well to the ways of your household and learning from your mother, from older women. And then for everyone, for everyone, put away the foreign gods among you. Fear the Lord and serve him only. Heed the warning that the Lord rewards every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. It says in Proverbs 1, Wisdom cries out aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. And then skips down. Wisdom is mocking them because they rejected her. And then verse 29, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. God will not be mocked. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But listen, this is how the chapter ends. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. So heed that warning. Heed that warning. Now for the unbeliever, the lost person, you will get according to the fruit of your ways and it will be wrath unto judgment unless you repent. The Lord will let you experience foolishness and folly, the, the fruits of that, and you'll see it and you'll walk in and you'll wonder, why am I so miserable? Why are all these terrible things happening to me? Because you've rejected wisdom, rejected the way of the Lord. And he's not going to bless it. But for the believer, you can do the same thing, and it's not wrath unto judgment, but it's discipline. It's discipline unto sanctification. You can still do the same things and still reap painful and serious discipline, even like Jacob did here. But the Lord intends for it to lead you to repentance and to trusting him and turning from the foolish ways. We all do this. We all do this. We do go our own way, turn aside a little bit to the right or to the left out of the path. And say, oh, I'm just going to go over here and do this. And then we get beat up a little bit 
and then go back in the path. Those who truly belong to him go back in the path. Those who don't really know him just go off and away. They went out from us because they weren't of us. So be not like that. Be not like the horse or the mule, which must be curbed with bit and bridle. But let the Lord instruct you in the way you should go. So heed that warning. But also take comfort in the assurance that he is a God who keeps covenant. And he will not forsake those who seek him. You, O Lord, Psalm 9, have not forsaken those who seek you. So there's a, ten- there's a tension there of a, that's intended to strike fear in a person from turning out of the ways of the Lord. And all of us, we should be trembling before him that if we, we turn out of his ways and go to the right or the left, that we'll experience the consequences of that. But a great comfort in the knowledge that he is merciful on failures, sins, weaknesses for those whose heart belongs to him, for those who seek after him with the whole heart. He's merciful. And he will fulfill his covenant to conform you to the image of Christ. So there's a comfort in it, and then there's an admonishment as well. And the ultimate thing to take away from this of importance is do not delay obedience. Do not be partial in obedience. And do not be slothful in obedience. Obey fully, obey gladly, and obey proactively. Proactively. Uh, we always tell our kids the, that they need to obey right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. And I read somebody recently coming against that saying, well, you, I mean, that's, I learned that that was just not right. I used to use that with my kids, and it's just so irrational to think that I could expect them to obey that way. That's not how the Lord deals with me. And, and all this kind of nonsense, trying to write off requiring that from children, and it's such foolishness. That's somebody who doesn't love the law of the Lord. That's somebody who doesn't love the commandments of God and think that they are life. They are life. That's why we cringe. If you cringe when you hear about God's law and his commandments, it's because either you're trusting in those things for your righteousness and your justification, which you need not because the blood of Jesus is sufficient, or you just don't want to submit to the Lord, and you don't really believe that his way is the best way. You don't delight in his commandments. The psalmist says, Enlarge my heart. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. So I used to take that and change it to word. And when I would read Psalm 119 and some of those, oh, I love your word. No, he says law for a reason. I love your law and your commandments. The things that you tell me to do are better than the things that I would do on my own. And we will all be slaves to someone. It's just a matter of who is your master. You will obey someone. It's just a matter of who you will obey. And his commands are the only ones that lead to life. All others lead to death. And see, we need to get this perspective that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That the testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. And so on in Psalm 19. And the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart.
The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And this is it. This is it. This is the heart that we need, that we need to beg God for. If you don't have it, you plead with him for this heart. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. I delight in your precepts your testimonies as much as in all riches he says in another place this is a perspective that we need to get i love your law it's my meditation all the day i'm thinking about the things that you say to do and i'm endeavoring by the power of your spirit and strength of your word abiding in you to do those things to do those things because they're life because they're life it's the way of life it's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path it says in romans at the end of chapter 1, when it gives the indictment of those who, who exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, and then it goes into the sexual sin, it goes into the homosexual sin, and it goes into the debased and the reprobate mind. And after the reprobate mind, it says, it gives the list of all the things they do, and it says that they are inventors of evil. They are devising ways to do evil and wicked things. But God has made man creative and with incredible intellect and the ability to devise things. It says when they were building the tabernacle that he put his spirit in the people to devise creative schemes, devise designs, beautiful designs and accoutrements for it. So he's put that in people, but the reprobate mind takes that and then uses it to commit sin. We are to devise ways to do good, to devise ways to keep his commandments and to keep his rules, and especially within my hearing, those who are the head of your household. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you and thank you for your instruction that you give us in your word and that all these things that we study of the patriarchs, of the, the fathers of the faith of old, they were written for our instruction. They were written so that we might not walk in the folly that they did and so that we might imitate the good and the righteous deeds that they did and above all so that we might see your ways as good and right and true, your commandments as a delight, your law as a beautiful thing and that we might see you as the faithful, covenant-keeping God even when we fail. I pray that if there are hearts in here who are kicking against the goads and resisting you, hearts that hate your law, hate your commandments, hate your rulership, hate that you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you have a claim over every heart, that you would bring conviction and godly sorrow, repentance. If anyone is resisting you, then strip it away. Break them by the power of your Spirit. And for all of us, that you would make us to delight and to love your testimonies, to delight in them as much as in all riches, to love your commandments, to keep them by faith, by faith, that our faith would be adorned with good works and that we would have a proactive kind of obedience, the kind of obedience that looks for ways to do what's pleasing to you so that we may live, Lord, Bring us to this place. Expose 
the foreign gods among us. Expose the wicked ways of which we need to repent and open our eyes to see so that we may behold wondrous things out of your law and enlarge our hearts so that we can run in the way of your commandments. And that we, the testimony of our lives would be a people who, who is, we're so blessed because we trust you and walk in obedience that other people are perplexed and confused at the way that we can, how we can live the way that we do, and that we have an occasion to bear witness that's because we know you, trust you, and walk in your ways. Lord, do sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Grow us in grace and the knowledge of you, and I pray that you'd move on every heart in this place that we would leave with a more determinate resolve to seek your face and to walk and proactive obedience to you for our joy, and that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.